Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for July 19th through 25th, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants sections 81 through 83. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Oh, this is wonderful. Just so good to have them. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 10 minutes, 25 seconds. That's not long at all. What would it be daily? 1 minute, 29 seconds. Oh my goodness. All right. Super easy. Lots of extra time to spend in studying the background of these revelations and thinking about how it can apply in our lives. Now, here we've got time codes if you want to look at it section by section. Otherwise, buckle up and let's get started. So let's start with section 81. Before we get into the background, we should be asking ourselves the question, who was Jesse Goss and who was Frederick G. Williams? From the Institute Manual, we get this background information. At a church conference held on January 25, 1832, in Amherst, Ohio, the Prophet Joseph Smith was ordained as the Prophet of the High Priesthood by Sidney Rigdon. On March 8, 1832, he selected Sidney Rigdon and Jesse Gauze as counselors in the presidency of the High Priesthood. The revelation given on March 15, 1832, confirmed Jesse Gauze's call and instructed him regarding the duties of a counselor. Gradually, the presidency of the high priesthood began to be known as the first presidency. This revelation should be regarded as a step toward the formal organization of the first presidency. Jesse Goss was likely baptized in late 1831 or early 1832. In March 1832, after being appointed as a counselor in the presidency of the high priesthood, Jesse may have assisted for a time as a scribe while the prophet Joseph Smith continued his inspired translation of the New Testament. He also traveled with Joseph Smith and other church leaders to Independence, Missouri in April 1832. Little is known about Jesse Goss after August 1832 except that he did not remain faithful and was excommunicated on December 3, 1832. In January 1833, a few weeks after Jesse Goss was excommunicated, the Lord called Frederick G. Williams to replace him as a counselor. Frederick G. Williams had become a member of the church after hearing the message of the missionaries who had traveled from New York to the Kirtland, Ohio area in October 1830. He had volunteered to accompany Oliver Cowdery and the other missionaries as they continued to Missouri to preach the gospel on the borders by the Lamanites. He returned to Kirtland many months later and was ordained a high priest on October 25, 1831. He later became a clerk and a scribe for Joseph Smith. Sometime after he replaced Jesse Goss as a counselor in the presidency of the high priesthood, Frederick G. Williams's name was written into the transcription of this revelation, replacing references to Jesse Goss. When this revelation was published in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, it referred only to Frederick G. Williams, illustrating that the instructions relating to the duties of a counselor were to be applied to others, not just to Jesse Goss. So let's take a look in verse 1, but as we're looking at the revelation, let's pay attention to what we can learn 
about being a counselor. Starting in verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, my servant Frederick G. Williams, listen to the voice of him who speaketh, to the word of the Lord your God, and hearken to the calling wherewith you were called, even to be a high priest in my church and a counselor unto my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., unto whom I have given the keys of the kingdom, which belong always unto the presidency of the high priesthood. Now, just a note here, the gospel topics, and by the way, just a reminder, what a great place to find information if you have a question about, say, keys of the priesthood. You can look that up. Now, it will take you to the article on the priesthood, but here's what it says. The keys of the priesthood are the right to preside and direct the affairs of the church within a jurisdiction. Jesus Christ holds all the keys of the priesthood pertaining to his church. He has conferred upon each of his apostles all the keys that pertain to the kingdom of God on earth. The senior living apostle, the president of the church, is the only person on earth authorized to exercise all priesthood keys. So let's go on in verse 3. Therefore, verily, I acknowledge him and will bless him and also thee, inasmuch as thou art faithful in counsel, in the office which I have appointed unto you, in prayer always, vocally and in thy heart, in public and in private, also in thy ministry, in proclaiming the gospel in the land of the living and among thy brethren. And in doing these things, thou wilt do the greatest good unto thy fellow beings, and wilt promote the glory of him who is your Lord. So let's bear in mind as we read these verses that the first presidency, as we would recognize it today, did not exist at this time. The call for counselors was a step in that direction. Remember that the leadership and the structure of the church is still forming. If you'll recall, a few lessons back when we studied Doctrine and Covenants section 71, this was the first time that another bishop was called other than Edward Partridge. Right. So there's still things that are forming here. And it's fascinating to watch the evolution, to see as needs arise and as the church is understood, how the Lord continues to show what is needed, introduce these callings and responsibilities, and give instruction for them. It's very exciting. Indeed. So there are a couple of things that I wanted to go over in just those verses. One of them is the term high priesthood. That's not really a term that we use a lot in the church today. From the Institute Manual, we get this clarification. For a time, early members of the church referred to the office of high priest as the high priesthood. Over time, the use of the term high priesthood was understood to mean the Melchizedek priesthood. In 1902, the First Presidency quoted the scripture passage stating the president of the high priesthood of the church is the presiding high priest over the high priesthood of the church, and then declared it is well to remember that the term high priesthood as frequently used has reference to the Melchizedek priesthood in contradistinction to the lesser or Aaronic priesthood. So that's helpful. Nice. But also... Let's talk a little bit more about the role of a counselor, or if perhaps I was George Friedrich Handel, I would say it this way. 
From the Institute Manual, we have a quote from President Gordon B. Hinckley, who at the time was first counselor to President Benson, so had a lot of firsthand experience in being a counselor to a very important position in the church. This is from October 1990 General Conference. He says, quote, The counselors are not the president. In certain circumstances, they may act in his behalf, but this is a delegated authority. A counselor is an assistant to his president. Regardless of the organization, the assignment of president is a heavy and burdensome one. As an assistant, the counselor is not the president. He does not assume responsibility and move out ahead of his president. In presidency meetings, each counselor is free to speak his mind on all issues that come before the presidency. However, it is the prerogative of the president to make the decision and it is the duty of the counselors to back him in that decision. His decision then becomes their decision, regardless of their previous ideas. Even the president of the church, who is prophet, seer, and revelator, and whose right and responsibility it is to make judgment and direct the course of the church, invariably consults with his counselors to determine their feelings. If there is a lack of unity, there follows an absence of action, Two counselors working with a president preserve a wonderful system of checks and balances. They become a safeguard that is seldom, if ever, in error and affords great strength of leadership, end quote. You know, John, you using Handel's music cue there, it's a good reminder that what they're singing about is a title of Jesus Christ. That's true. If that's one of the names of Christ counselor, then what a great thing to be thinking about when we serve in that capacity. So then what did we learn from the scriptures and words of living prophets about being a counselor? Verse 3, for example, I see that we should be faithful in counsel, in prayer always, which is interesting because it's vocally and in thy heart, public and in private. If I'm a counselor, Where is my heart during meetings or as we're working together in courses of action when we counsel? Am I prayerful in my heart in a way that would help support the president? Am I prayerful at home in private in a way that would help support the president? What a beautiful lesson. And I guess I've never really thought about it until you brought in Handel's Messiah, but that is a divine role. It is Jesus Christ who was in submission to the Father's will to do all the things the Father asked him to do. And we find ourselves in a great opportunity to serve in the way Christ served. All right, let's move on with verse five then. Wherefore, be faithful. Stand in the office which I have appointed unto you. Succor the weak. Remember the word sucker means to run to the aid of. Lift up the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. And if thou art faithful unto the end, thou shalt have a crown of immortality and eternal life in the mansions which I have prepared in the house of my father. Behold and lo, these are the words of Alpha and Omega, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, once again, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So he's saying, I'm the A to Z, I'm the everything, Jesus Christ. So 
In the Institute Manual, I found a really interesting quote from Elder Marvin J. Ashton. This comes from October 1991 General Conference, and it specifically addresses that phrase to strengthen the feeble knees. He says, quote, There is a phrase used four times in the standard works, which has always intrigued me. It is the expression feeble knees. By definition, feeble means weak, not strong, without force, easily broken, frail. When Frederick G. Williams was called to be a counselor to Joseph Smith, he was given this charge, Wherefore be faithful, stand in the office which I have appointed unto you, succor the weak, lift up the hands which hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees. Coupled with the word strengthen, which is to make or become stronger, the phrase led me to contemplate the meaning of these words. Early on, I assumed feeble knees meant weak or exhausted. However, the context of its use in Isaiah suggests that it may have a somewhat richer meaning, something more like fearful. In Doctrine and Covenants 81.5, the verse might be interpreted as the Lord's urging Frederick G. Williams to provide strength to the weak, succor the weak, Provide encouragement to those who are exhausted or discouraged, lift up the hands which hang down, and give courage and strength to those with feeble knees and fearful hearts, end quote. thought that was an interesting insight. That is. Well, so let's move on to section 82. Welcome to 82. Yeah. Let's take our introduction here again from the Institute Manual. It says this, in 1832... The church had two centers of growing membership, one in Kirtland, Ohio, and one in Jackson County, Missouri. To assist the needy saints and to generate revenue that could be used to purchase land in Zion, Jackson County, and publish the revelations, a storehouse was established in each location. In November 1831, the Lord appointed a group of church leaders to be stewards over the revelations and commandments and see to their publication. Later, the Lord commanded that a firm be organized to manage the literary and mercantile endeavors of the church. As recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 78, Joseph Smith, Newell K. Whitney, and Sidney Rigdon were commanded to travel to Independence, Missouri, and counsel with church leaders there. Before their departure, however, the Prophet Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were violently taken from their homes in Hiram, Ohio, and brutally beaten in the middle of the night of March 24th to 25th in 1832. The mob of local residents, including some former church members, covered Joseph's body in tar and feathers in an effort to humiliate him. A few days later, perhaps partially because of exposure to the cold air on that night when the mobbers burst into their home, Joseph and Emma Smith's 10-month-old adopted son, Joseph Murdoch Smith, died. To fulfill the Lord's commandment to counsel with church leaders in Missouri, the prophet and others left Hiram, Ohio on April 1, 1832, and made the nearly 900-mile journey to Independence, Missouri, arriving on April 24, 1832. As the church leaders from Ohio assembled with those in Missouri in a council meeting held on April 26, 1832, the prophet Joseph Smith dictated the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 82. 
This revelation was not published in the Book of Commandments, but was included using pseudonyms or substitute names in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. So let's get into the section, starting in verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, my servants, that inasmuch as you have forgiven one another your trespasses, even so I, the Lord, forgive you. Nevertheless, there are those among you who have sinned exceedingly. Yea, even all of you have sinned. But verily I say unto you, Beware from henceforth, and refrain from sin, lest sore judgments fall upon your heads. Now there's an interesting doctrinal thing in just those first two verses. From the Institute Manual, we have a note from Elder Richard G. Scott. This is from October 2002 General Conference, who says, quote, you may be carrying a heavy burden of feeling injured by another who has seriously offended you. Your response to that offense may have distorted your understanding so that you feel justified in waiting for that individual to ask forgiveness so that the pain can leave. The Savior dispelled any such thought when he commanded, Wherefore I say unto you, that ye ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. Don't carry that burden of offense any longer. Genuinely ask forgiveness of one that has offended you, even when you consider you have done no wrong. That effort will assuredly bring you peace and will likely begin the healing of serious misunderstandings, end quote. So it's important to forgive one another. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that is so against the natural man tendency. Mm-hmm. That really is a divine characteristic that we're being asked to live. Going on to verse 3, we get another very important declaration. Verse 3, For of him unto whom much is given... Much is required, and he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. A very powerful thought. Kind of reminds me in a way of with great power comes great responsibility. But <laughs> Thanks, Uncle Ben. Yeah. Perhaps I'm <laughs> reading a little bit too much from the book of our late brother Stan Lee. From the uh, Institute Manual, we get a quote from Elder Neil L. Anderson from October 2010 General Conference, where he emphasizes this by saying, quote, As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, having a witness of his reality not only from the Bible, but also from the Book of Mormon, knowing his priesthood has been restored to the earth, having made sacred covenants to follow him, and received the gift of the Holy Ghost, having been endowed with power in his holy temple and being part of preparing for his glorious return to earth, we cannot compare what we are to be with those who have not yet received these truths. Unto whom much is given, much is required. End quote. That's a really good point. And maybe we could extend that to even within the church, just because we're members of the church, it doesn't mean that we have truly received certain truths. I think we might be able to say that depending on our spiritual journey, some in the church have received more truths than others. So don't compare, even within the church, who we are to be with those who have not yet received certain truths. 
Or vice versa. Right. So let's take a look in verses 5 through 6. The Lord is warning the saints that the dominion and power of Satan over the earth is increasing. And then we move on to verse 8. And again, I say unto you, I give unto you a new commandment that you may understand my will concerning you. Or in other words, I give unto you directions how you may act before me that it may turn to you for your salvation. Think about that for a minute, about how that applies to every commandment. In verse 8, it says, I give unto you a new commandment. Why? Why has he given the commandment? That you may understand my will concerning you. Why? He's giving us directions of how we should act so that it can turn to us for our salvation. What an amazing way to think about commandments. This is about how we can receive more truth, more light, more joy, and ultimately turn to us for our salvation. Going on in verse 10, I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say, but when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. Great verse. It is. And if you think about it in the context of those other two verses, if we follow the Lord's commandments then the consequences of that, the Lord is bound to those. We can trust that it will turn to us for our salvation, that we can know how to act in the presence of God. President Joseph Fielding Smith, in the book Teachings of the Presidents of the Church, taught, when we turn from the commandments the Lord has given unto us for our guidance, then we do not have claim upon his blessings. Keep the commandments, walk in the light, endure to the end, be true to every covenant and obligation, and the Lord will bless you beyond your fondest dreams. And to that I add a hearty amen. Indeed. Now in verses 11 through 13, the Lord directed the actual organization of the firm we talked about before known as the United Firm and appointed its members. Verse 12 makes clear the purpose of the firm, to manage the affairs of the poor and all things pertaining to the bishopric both in the land of Zion and in the land of Kirtland. Remember, those are the two headquarters of the church right now, in Jackson County, Missouri, and in Kirtland, Ohio. In the Institute Manual, I found a really neat quote from President Gordon B. Hinckley. This is from a general conference talk in October 1999. He talks about the notion of church-owned businesses and adds this clarification. Quote, We have a few business interests, not many. Most of these were begun in very early days when the church was the only organization that could provide the capital that was needed to start certain business interests designed to serve the people in this remote area, such as banks, hospitals, and manufacturing. We have divested ourselves long since of some of these where it was felt there was no longer a need. Some of these business interests directly serve the needs of the church. For instance, our business is communication, We must speak with people across the world. We must speak at home to let our stand be known, and abroad to acquaint others with our work. And so we own a newspaper, the Deseret News, the oldest business institution in Utah. We likewise own television and radio stations. 
These provide a voice in the communities which they serve. We have a real estate arm designed primarily to ensure the viability and the attractiveness of properties surrounding Temple Square. The core of many cities has deteriorated terribly. This cannot be said of Salt Lake City. With the beautiful grounds of Temple Square and the adjoining block to the east, we maintain gardens the equal of any in the world. Are these businesses operated for profit? Of course they are. They operate in a competitive world. They pay taxes. They are important citizens of this community. And they produce a profit. And from that profit comes the money which is used by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Foundation to help with charitable and worthwhile causes in this community and abroad, and, more particularly, to assist the great humanitarian efforts of the Church. These businesses contribute one-tenth of their profit to the Foundation, the foundation cannot give to itself or to other church entities, but it can use its resources to assist other causes, which it does so generously. Millions of dollars have been so distributed. Thousands upon thousands have been fed. They have been supplied with medicine. They have been supplied with clothing and shelter in times of great emergency and terrible distress. How grateful I feel for the beneficence of this great foundation, which derives its resources from the business interests of the church, end quote. You know, we don't really talk about that very much at all, but it's really good to know, and I love that he shared that in General Conference. I do too, and it's important for us to remember how that evolved. Again, the notion of church-owned businesses was formed from very early days in being out in Utah, where we didn't have banks or hospitals or anything, that this was the one organization that could actually provide that to start with. And I know from living here in Salt Lake City that there are organizations that were originally started by the church that have been divested and that are now their own entity. Yeah, but it is really neat to be able to look and see how these things got set up and for what purposes the Lord had in mind to take care of the poor and the needy of his saints. Absolutely. Well, let's go back to the section, though. Starting in verse 16, Behold, here is wisdom also in me for your good, and you are to be equal. Or in other words, you are to have equal claims on the properties. For the benefit of managing the concerns of your stewardships, Every man according to his wants and his needs, inasmuch as his wants are just. And all this for the benefit of the church of the living God, that every man may improve upon his talent, that every man may gain other talents, yea, even an hundredfold, to be cast into the Lord's storehouse to become the common property of the whole church, every man seeking the interest of his neighbor and doing all things with an eye single to the glory of God. Beautiful. You know, Jay, we've been talking in this lesson about the United Firm. It should be important to remember that this is also sometimes referred to as the United Order. There's an article on this in the Church History Topics in your Gospel Library. I'd like to read just a bit of the very last paragraph of it, which adds some important clarification. It says, quote, in some editions of the Doctrine and Covenants, the United Firm was called the United Order, and code names were inserted in the place of the members' names. In addition, language about the firm's purpose was changed so that it referred more generically to caring for the poor. 
This was done to protect the identity of the firm's members and to keep its purposes confidential. The names of the individuals were restored to the Doctrine and Covenants in the 1980s, but the word order is still used instead of firm in sections 78, 82, 92, 96, and 104. This has led some to confuse the firm with the United Order, a system for living the law of consecration established later by Brigham Young in Utah, end quote. Good clarification. And again, great use of the reference, the church history topics in your Gospel Library app. It's a great reference. So let's move on to section 83. And right there in verse 1, it makes it immediately clear who this revelation is concerning. Verse 1, Verily thus saith the Lord, In addition to the laws of the church concerning women and children, those who belong to the church who have lost their husbands or fathers. That spells it out right there. But for some further background, let's take a look at the Institute Manual. It says, Some of the saints who immigrated to Jackson County, Missouri, had settled in or near the town of Independence, while the majority of church members lived in small settlements about 12 miles to the west in Caw Township. After meeting with church leaders in Independence on April 26 and 27th, the Prophet Joseph Smith visited the saints residing in Caw Township, including those who had moved from Colesville, New York. The prophet later recorded the following about his visit. On the 28th and 29th of April, 1832, I visited the brethren in Caw Township, 12 miles west of Independence, and received a welcome only known by brethren and sisters united as one in the same faith and by the same baptism and supported by the same Lord. The Colesville branch in particular rejoiced as the ancient saints did with Paul. It is good to rejoice with the people of God. On the 30th, I returned to Independence and again sat in council with the brethren. At that April 30th meeting in Independence, Missouri, the prophet received the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 83. At the time, some of the church members in Missouri were living according to the principles of consecration. During Joseph's visit, it is possible that questions arose regarding the property rights of women following the death of their husbands who had consecrated their property to the church. So let's go on and see what the Lord has to say in verses 2 and 3. Women have claim on their husbands for their maintenance until their husbands are taken. And if they are not found transgressors, they shall have fellowship in the church. And if they are not faithful, they shall not have fellowship in the church. Yet they may remain upon their inheritances according to the laws of the land. So, in other words, women, after their husbands die, are to have fellowship in the church as long as they are not transgressors. If they are transgressors or not faithful, they will not have fellowship in the church, but they will still have claim on their husbands or family's stewardship, the land, etc. So, that's an important thing. When we're doing the law of consecration, when you've consecrated property to the church, it's no longer yours. But when a stewardship is granted, regardless of your standing in the church, that's still yours. That is your stewardship. Good clarification. From the Institute Manual, we have a quote from President Gordon B. Hinckley. This is from October 1996 General Conference. He says, quote, Included among the women of the church are those who have lost their husbands through abandonment, divorce, and death. Great is our obligation to you. 
I hope that every woman who finds herself in these kinds of circumstances is blessed with an understanding and helpful bishop, with a Relief Society president who knows how to assist her, with home teachers who know where their duty lies and how to fulfill it, and with a host of ward members who are helpful without being intrusive, end quote. Great clarification, great vision. It's an important thing to remember our obligation to those in that circumstance. Great. But let's take a look back in the Revelation, verse 4. All children have claim upon their parents for their maintenance until they are of age. And after that, they have claim upon the church, or in other words, upon the Lord's storehouse, if their parents have not wherewith to give them inheritances. All right, so children have claim on their parents until they're old enough. As adults, they have claim upon the church's storehouse if their parents cannot provide them with an inheritance. So the principal role there is the family, their first point of support. And if not, the church can help. Absolutely. From the Institute Manual, we have another quote from President Howard W. Hunter. This comes from October 1994 General Conference. He said, quote, You who hold the priesthood have the responsibility, unless disabled, to provide temporal support for your wife and children. No man can shift the burden of responsibility to another, not even to his wife. The Lord has commanded that women and children have claim on their husbands and fathers for their maintenance, end quote. Good. That's, of course, reemphasized again in the proclamation to the world on the family. Absolutely. Let's take a look in verse 6. And the storehouse shall be kept by the consecrations of the church, and widows and orphans shall be provided for, as also the poor. Amen. So there... The storehouse is built up by donations and consecration of members, and it's used to help widows, orphans, and the poor. The Institute Manual has a quote from President Spencer W. Kimball from the October 1977 General Conference. He says, The church and its members are commanded by the Lord to be self-reliant and independent. The responsibility for each person's social, emotional, spiritual, physical, or economic well-being, rests first upon himself, second upon his family, and third upon the church if he is a faithful member thereof. No true Latter-day Saint, while physically or emotionally able, will voluntarily shift the burden of his own or his family's well-being to someone else so long as he can under the inspiration of the Lord and with his own labors he will supply himself and his family with the spiritual and temporal necessities of life. That's so important. And it's interesting for anyone who has been involved with welfare efforts of the church, everything that the church does surrounds around the notion of getting the individual back on their feet so that they can again support themselves and their families. Yeah, It's not a situation in which it's meant to be a perpetual support. And it can be hard. This is a challenging world that we live in. But to have that sense of purpose, to be that hero for your family and to provide for them, there's so many positive things that come from that. Absolutely. But there are all sorts of circumstances out there. So consider how we can be more aware of the needs of those around us and look for ways to apply the Lord's counsel to seek the interests of our neighbors, as it says 
in verse 19 of section 82. What a great message for us today. Absolutely, and a great challenge for us in this coming week. How can we apply this? Well, that's our lesson for today, and I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that there are gems that you found that you can keep and share and apply in your life. Keep reading your scriptures. We've got a lot more to talk about, and we'll see you in our next lesson. We'll look forward to seeing you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans. <laughs>